Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled, Identifying and Managing Cancer Therapy-Induced Interstitial Lung Disease, ILD, and Pneumonitis, is provided by Axis Medical Education and is supported by educational grants from AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals and Daiichi Sankyo. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Uh, hello and welcome uh, to this educational activity titled Identifying and Managing Cancer Therapy-Induced uh, Interstitial Lung Disease and Pneumonitis. I am uh, Dr. Adam Brofsky, a professor of medicine and associate chief of the Division of Hematology Oncology and co-director of the Comprehensive Breast Cancer Program uh, at UPMC Hillman Cancer Center of the University of Pittsburgh in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'm joined by Nina Thomas, who is assistant professor of medicine and director of the Thoracic Malignancy Pillar for the Center for Lung and Breathing Division of Pulmonary Sciences and Critical Care Medicine at the University of Colorado in Denver, Colorado. Here is a disclaimer uh, and a disclosure indicating that we will be discussing off-label use of approved agents or agents that are in development. Here's our financial disclosure information. The learning objectives of this activity. Uh, with that, we'll turn to Dr. Thomas to uh, discuss some of the relevant aspects of interstitial lung disease and pneumonitis. Dr. Thomas. Thank you so much, Dr. Brasky. That drug-induced pneumonitis and interstitial lung disease is more commonly seen with newer agents now than we previously saw before. So about 10 to 20% of all patients receiving antineoplastic agents will develop some form of pulmonary toxicity during their treatment or even after. Um, and the reason for such high prevalence of drug-induced pneumonitis or pulmonary toxicity is because that the lungs receive the entire blood supply. So the exposure is extremely high when patients get these antineoplastic agents. There's multiple different mechanisms of pathogenesis for this, um, for drug-induced pulmonary toxicity, which results in multiple different presentations. And it, that's what makes it so highly variable. And so there, some of the um, uh, examples of pathogenesis include direct injury of the alveolar capillary endothelium, which leads to release of cytokines and recruitment of the inflammatory cells into the lung. Um, some agents directly um, signal systemic release of cytokines, like gemcitabine, that result in endothelial dysfunction, capillary leak, and non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. There are some agents that uh, induce cell-mediated injury, including lymphocyte and macrophage activation. Uh, there's evidence of oxidative injury from free radicals, which we see often with pleomycin, which is actually an agent that we commonly use to study things like IPF and other interstitial lung disease, as well as dysregulation of the immune system and T-cell activation, which we see often with immune checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, agents that act on EGFR receptors um, can affect the lungs because there are EGFR receptors on type 2 pneumocytes, which uh, actually can result in inhibition of alveolar wall repair. And then finally, we, we don't know all of the mechanisms of pathogenesis, which is clearly seen in radiation recall pneumonitis, that we are not totally clear on the pathogenesis of why this happens. And because of the multiple different mechanisms of uh, 
action for drug-induced pneumonitis, we have a huge variety of presentations of how it can present. So these are just some of the ways that um, pulmonary toxicity can present with specific lung diagnoses. So you can have acute lung injury with diffuse alveolar damage, which is very similar to ARDS. You can have a sort of capillary leak syndrome and non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. You can see interstitial pneumonitis, hypersensitivity pneumonitis, organizing pneumonia, eosinophilic pneumonia, diffuse alveolar hemorrhage, uh, granulomatous pneumonitis, pulmonary fibrosis, and even pulmonary venoocclusive disease, which presents with severe pulmonary hypertension. And to all of these different variety of presentations makes it very difficult to diagnose this, especially with the variety of other things on the differential di diagnosis when patients present. And so we found certain risk factors that predispose patients to developing drug-induced pulmonary toxicity. Some of those include um, older age, male sex, any sort of pre-existing lung disease, interstitial lung disease, uh, IPF, COPD, and bronchiectasis, a history of smoking or actively currently smoking. Some uh, pulmonary toxicities are dose-dependent um, for some drugs, for example, glutamicin. A uh, history of prior thoracic radiation, especially for lung cancer, because radiation is directed specifically at the lung, or for radiation to places around the chest, for example, breast cancer. Um, a history of renal dysfunction. There are also some examples of genetic susceptibility to pulmonary toxicity, including CYP enzyme uh, polymorphisms, as well as HLA allelic variants. And then also if they are on combination chemotherapy, the risk is higher. And so patients will often present for drug-induced pneumonitis with very vague symptoms. Um, some of the more common symptoms are cough, dyspnea, some low-grade fevers, hypoxemia. Um, low, uh, less commonly, you'll see chills, sputum production, and weight loss. Most of the time, the cough is non-productive, but sometimes they will have some sputum production. And on physical exam, um, a lot of times it can be a very normal physical exam, but you can sometimes hear things like bivasilar crackles, wheezings, rails, and occasionally a morbilliform rash if they have a hypersensitivity reaction. The timing for presentation for pulmonary toxicity from antineoplastic agents is highly variable, um, which makes it, again, very difficult to diagnose. At the, at the very least, the onset should happen after initiation of the drug, but when after initiation is somewhat variable. It can present within weeks to months of initiating the therapy. It can present with the first cycle or any subsequent treatment courses. And for some agents, you can have delayed pneumonitis or fibrosis even after the agent has been discontinued. And we see that sometimes with uh, agents like gliomycin, nitrosurias, and immunotherapy. And like I've been alluding to, the diagnosis of acute pneumonitis or pulmonary toxicity or interstitial lung disease from an antineoplastic agent is very difficult. Um, diagnose, the diagnosis is usually a diagnosis of exclusion with a very high, highly variable presentation. Um, there's a large differential diagnosis when they present, um, including opportunistic infections, metastatic disease to the lungs, lymphangenic spread of cancer in the lungs, diffuse alveolar hemorrhage, which 
can also be a presentation of pulmonary toxicity, but can be totally unrelated. Cardiogenic um, pulmonary edema. Some of the tools that we use to help with diagnosis are a high resolution CT, um, consultation with your local pulmonologist. You can get blood cultures and a CBC, um, which can sometimes be helpful if there's an underlying infection. And with your consultant pulmonologist, you can discuss bronchoscopy as an adjuvant diagnostic test, as well as an ABG if it's clinically indicated to evaluate for hypoxemia, especially in there clinically sick enough to be in the hospital. Um, I think one of the most important tools for uh, evaluating for the diagnosis of pulmonary toxicity is the high-resolution CT. Uh, it's the imaging modality of choice, and unfortunately, the findings can be somewhat nonspecific and variable because of all the different ways that it can present. Um, but at least with the CT, there are certain patterns that we sometimes look for um, to help identify pulmonary toxicity. Some of those patterns are things like ground glass opacities with or without some consolidation. You can see reticular changes or septal thickening, central lobular nodules, which we see frequently with hypersensitivity pneumonitis, even pulmonary fibrosis. So for example, with bleomycin, you might see lung volume loss and traction bronchiectasis and honeycombing. The distribution of it is usually bilateral, um, basal or predominant, and very peripheral, and it's usually very diffuse, so affecting multiple lobes. There's obviously some um, exceptions to that. For example, with recall radiation pneumonitis, you can get it locally in one lobe as opposed to the other lobes, and then sometimes just they present in one lobe or in one part of the lung for unknown reasons. Sometimes you can have some higher lymphadenopathy. Uh, or mediastinal lymphadenopathy, as well as pleural effusions, and they can present with varying severities. Anytime you get a patient with ILD or pneumonitis that is drug-induced, regardless of how serious it is or how severe, you should always follow them with serial CTs and evaluations until resolution, including after you've discontinued the drug, and that's to make sure that there's no continued progression of the disease. So I just wanted to go over a few examples of what you might see with patients and the variability of patients' presentations and their CT patterns that you might see. The patient with, um, who has breast cancer and was treated with paclitaxel who developed after only two doses, some fevers as well as shortness of breath. Um, and you see on the CT scan some bilateral subtle ground glass opacities that's pretty diffuse in all lobes. And Basically, this patient was treated by just discontinuation of the drug and there was resolution. This is another patient who was, had a history of metastatic renal cancer, came in with mild shortness of breath and some intermittent fevers um, during the first three months of therapy. And this is the CT after two months, which you can see shows consolidation in the right middle lobe. And this patient underwent transbronchial biopsy with bronchoscopy which showed interstitial inflammation and organizing pneumonia without any evidence of infection. And the infiltrates actually improved and cleared with cessation of therapy and starting prednisone. And finally, it's a patient with a little bit more severe disease. Um, it's, this is a patient who had uh, lung cancer, who was a former smoker, and you can actually see on the CT evidence of emphysema in the spared lung, who was treated with erlotinib. Um, and the CT shows pretty extensive brown glass opacities in bilateral lungs, 
as well as some septal thickening and a pleural effusion. Um, this was identified in the fourth week of treatment with Lovatinib, and unfortunately, despite discontinuation of the drug and treatment with prednisone, um, the patient unfortunately had progression of disease and died. One of the other tools that is sometimes brought up for evaluation for pulmonary toxicity is pulmonary function tests. And the use of, for, of PFTs for prediction of developing pulmonary toxicity is unfortunately not well studied or established. Um, if you were to get pulmonary function tests, the patterns you would see are occasionally they could be normal, or most commonly you might see a decline in the diffusion capacity or DLCO, as well as a restrictive pattern on PFTs. So decreased FPV1 and FPC with a normal ratio, as well as reduced lung volumes if you were to assess that with PFTs. Unfortunately, PFTs don't really correlate with the worst prognosis and don't predict the risk of developing pulmonary toxicities. And so there's very limited utility for serial PFTs, not to mention there are multiple other diseases and acute illnesses that can alter your PFTs. A tool that can be very useful, however, is bronchoscopy in consultation with your pulmonologist. There are a couple techniques that we can use to help with diagnosis, depending on the CT patterns that we see. You can use bronchial alveolar lavage to collect um, cultures as well as a cell count with differential to see if there are other etiologies that you can rule out, for example, infectious etiologies. So you can collect viral, bacterial, AFB, and fungal cultures. The cell count differential often shows lymphocytosis, but can also show neutrophilia and eosinophilia. You can also get cytology from a bronchial alveolar lavage to evaluate for malignancy. Now, the diagnostic yield for cytology from just a BAL is not very good. However, in the setting of concern for lymphangetic carcinomatosis can have a diagnostic yield anywhere up to 60%. So it can sometimes be useful. You can also do serial aliquots of BALs to rule out DAH. Now, transbronchial biopsy is another tool that we can use to help exclude things like lymphangetic carcinomatosis, vasculitis, or certain pneumonias, for example, certain fungal pneumonias, as well as uh, organizing pneumonia. That being said, most of the time, transbronchial biopsy does not necessarily rule out, but can rule in other diseases. And there's significant risk that comes with transbronchial biopsies, including bleeding, and pneumothorax. So it's definitely something that we respect and hold off on unless it's absolutely necessary. Often too, the pathologic diagnosis that you get with transbronchial biopsy can be very nonspecific. For example, you can get granulomas, which can be associated with infections, but also drug-induced pneumonitis, as well as other interstitial lung diseases. So a common tool that we use very frequently in the pulmonary realm is Pneumatox. This is a website that was developed by Philip Camus and is free for everyone to use. Um, you can search certain anti-neoplastic agents as well as the, and it will show you if it's in, um, associated with pulmonary toxicity, as well as what patterns that are most commonly seen. Uh, if you are worried about gemcitabine, you can search gemcitabine and see the common patterns that are associated with it. And it's just pneumatox.com. I will turn it back over to Dr. Brodsky to continue to discuss some of the more specific agents associated with pulmonary toxicity. Thank you very much, Dr. Thomas. And uh, I'm gonna go through a, a variety of agents uh, that uh, have a known interstitial lung disease. Uh, and these agents are, treated, are, are used in uh, cancer therapy. 
Um, they're shown here in these broad classes. Uh, there are antibody drug conjugates, mTOR inhibitors, checkpoint inhibitors, tyrosine kinase inhibitors, and CDK4-6 inhibitors. And they each have an individual uh, differential sort of pulmonary toxicity. We'll start with antibody drug conjugates uh, and interstitial lung disease. A summary uh, from the EMA and FDA published in Cancers and shows the antibody various antibody drug conjugates and their incidence of lung toxicity of any grade. Uh, two are for HER2 positive metastatic breast cancer, uh, trastuzumab uh, emtansine and tr uh, trastuzumab deruxtecan. Uh, and you can see here an incidence uh, of trastuzumab emtansine of 9%, trastuzumab deruxtecan of about 9 to 14% in breast cancer and about 10% in HER2 positive gastric cancer. Uh, and for tumab of adoitin in urothelial cancer, uh, has an incidence of lung toxicity of less than 1%. Sosituzumab govotecan in triple negative breast cancer is unknown. Uh, this is interesting uh, because, you know, clearly uh, it's not necessarily the payload of these antibody drug conjugates, uh, but actually uh, potentially an interaction with payload uh, as well as the antigen. Uh, it appears most of the polonitoxicity uh, of these antibody drug conjugates appears to be limited to her family um, uh, and monoclonal antibodies as the, uh, as the um, antibody and not necessarily the payload uh, or potentially the linker. Uh, so, trastuzumab deruxacan or TDXD was designed uh, with several key attributes. Uh, it's shown here. Uh, it's a humanized anti-HER2 IgG1 monoclonal antibody uh, with the same amino acid sequence as trastuzumab linked with a cleavable linker. It's a tetrapeptide cleavable linker uh, that um, has a topoisomerase uh, inhibitor payload. Uh, and it has an H1 antibody uh, payload to antibody ratio and has a cleavable linker that allows the antibody, uh, that allows the payload to be cleaved in the extracellular space as well as inside of the cancer cell. Uh, several trials uh, have been performed and published uh, in major journals. Destiny 01 breast study, women uh, with unresectable or metastatic breast cancer uh, received, uh, 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 they were already uh, progressed on several regimens, including uh, trastuzumab and tansine, uh, and they were treated essentially initially with a pharmacokinetic uh, dose finding stage, and then finally a continuation stage, and about 184 patients uh, were enrolled uh, at a dose of uh, 5.4 milligrams per kilogram. Uh, when the, this was fairly a dramatic response, you fully 96 to 97 percent of the patients had either stable disease or a response to this therapy with a median of six regimens. Now, the interesting thing about this trial uh, is that initially uh, interstitial lung disease started to be seen uh, very early when the trial was started in Japan. Uh, and um, uh, the initial um, report in August 2019 uh, had four uh, grade five uh, episodes of interstitial lung disease for a total uh, of 13.6 of all grades. Uh, this was updated an additional uh, uh, toxicity, uh, fatal toxicity grade five was seen, making it five out of 184 patients or 2.7% uh, of patients uh, had interstitial lung disease. And that remained stable uh, approximately uh, 10 months later in March, 2021 at the final analysis. Uh, so most of the interstitial lung disease in this uh, phase two trial 
appeared to occur within the first year of therapy, uh, and the percentage of total percentage of adverse events appeared to remain stable uh, across all of uh, the trial, all three endpoints of the trial. And this was independently adjudicated uh, with, a, with a group of uh, oncologists and pulmonologists. Now, uh, this trial was recently uh, presented uh, at the ESMO meeting, uh, and this was, uh, again, a trial in the second line. Uh, patients had progressed on standard first-line therapy uh, for HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer and were randomized to TDXD or trastuzumab deruxacan uh, versus TDM1 or trastuzumab emtansine. Uh, and the differences of TDXD uh, had an 8 to 1 antibody drug ratio, where TDM1 had a 3.5 to 1 antibody drug ratio, but uh, TDXD had a tumor, uh, this cleavable linker, and this potential bystander effect. So the thought was that it was a better uh, ADC than TDM1, and in fact, that was borne out in this randomized trial. Uh, the progression-free survival in second-line therapy was 25.1 months versus 7.2 months uh, from uh, uh, TDM1, and this likely will now become the standard second-line therapy for HER2-positive uh, metastatic breast cancer. Looking at the uh, adverse events, the ILD pneumonitis rates uh, in this trial, is, uh, by this point, we had already had the phase two trial, so there was a lot of awareness uh, of how to manage this, how to recognize this early, as Dr. Thomason mentioned earlier on. What you can see here is that the incidence, the all-grade incidence, was 10.5%, and there are only two cases of grade three uh, uh, pneumonitis and 7% uh, grade two, which essentially, as we're going to find out, is uh, uh, CT abnormalities with symptoms, uh, where TDM1, as you can see here, uh, had a much lower incidence, only five uh, out of 261 patients. And there was no grade four or grade five uh, adjudicated ILD pneumonitis uh, in this trial. Uh, there were other trials. Uh, gastric cancer uh, has a certain percentage of patients uh, that have uh, HER2-positive disease. Uh, and again, this is a, a trial uh, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, Destiny Gastric 01, uh, which was uh, TDXD, or trastuzumab deruxacan, uh, versus uh, physician's choice of therapy. Uh, and in this trial, uh, the median, uh, median overall survival in this trial was 12.5 months versus 8.9 months with physician's choice of therapy for a hazard ratio of 0.6. Uh, and this likely also will become a standard of care uh, for um, uh, HER2-positive gastric cancer. In this trial, uh, there was a 9.6% uh, 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 had a treatment-related ILD pneumonitis, and the medium to time to onset uh, was about a little under three months. Most were grade one. Uh, there were a few that were grade three or four. There were no grade five uh, events. What's nice is that the majority, eight of 12, uh, of these cases um, uh, had resolved or resolving at the time of analysis uh, with median duration and resolution of about a little under two months. Uh, three had not resolved and one was unknown. Obviously, uh, because there was not an ADC used, no cases of ILD occurred in the physician's choice arm. Destiny CRC1 uh, looked at uh, unresectable or metastatic colorectal cancer that was heard to expressing. Again, that's about probably 10% of all colorectal cancer. Uh, the uh, RAS and BRAF were wild type, was meeting of two prior regimens. Uh, and um, again, this trial excluded patients with a history of current or suspected interstitial lung disease. The primary endpoint was confirmed overall response rate. Uh, the, the drug was actually given at a slightly higher dose 
uh, 6.4 milligrams per kilogram every three weeks. Uh, there was an initial cohort uh, where futility monitoring was done, and uh, if there was greater than 20% uh, after 20 patients had had a, a, a pre-adjudicated response rate, uh, uh, two further cohorts were uh, treated, uh, one with um, HER2 positive disease that was IHC2+, as opposed to IHC3+, or uh, uh, um, fluorescence in situ hybridization positive, and cohort C was actually IHC1+, uh, in this trial. And uh, like the other trials of um, trastuzumab deruxacan uh, in colon cancer was a fairly dramatic uh, response as well as uh, stable disease uh, in this trial. Uh, interestingly enough, patients, a few patients with um, IHC2 plus uh, disease or IHC, uh, IHC2 plus actually responded as well. Uh, the interstitial lung disease in this trial, uh, again, adjudicated. Uh, the median time to onset was about two months. Uh, all patients received corticosteroids. Uh, four of the patients with grade two uh, recover. One patient with grade three did not cut recover and was actually felt to be dead, to have died because of disease progression. <clears throat> the median onset uh, to the initiation of steroids uh, in this trial uh, was uh, from uh, when ILD was recognized was 3.5 days. And the three fatal cases, as you can see here, out of the 86% of patients, or 3.5%, uh, the median time to onset was anywhere from 9 to 121 days, under 20 days, with a median of 22 days and death occurred about uh, one to uh, three weeks after diagnosis. And again, it's not surprising, I think, that uh, the incidence of grade five pneumonitis was a little bit higher, uh, mainly, I think, because of the dose of the drug, uh, and perhaps at the time this was not as recognized uh, uh, a side effect uh, of um, trastuzumab deruxacan uh, in colorectal cancer. There was also a trial of lung cancer published in the Journal of Medicine. These were patients with unresectable or metastatic non-squamous cell, non-small lung non-squamous, uh, non-small cell lung cancer that was refractory to standard treatment uh, with a HER2 expressing a HER2 activating mutation uh, with an endpoint of overall response rate. Uh, and again, there were two cohorts, one that was HER2 mutated and not amplified and one that was HER2 expressing uh, either IHC3 plus or IHC2 plus. Uh, and in this particular trial, just like the others, uh, in this trial of um, uh, 85 patients actually uh, updated uh, at ESMO 2021, were most patients, like the other therapies, responded uh, quite nicely. Uh, some had actually had prior therapy with HER2 tyrosine kinase inhibitors and either had HER2 protein expression or amplification or HER2 mutation. Uh, just about everybody responded to this therapy. Uh, again, looking at the ILD, uh, because this was also a higher dose, uh, the median time to onset in this uh, trial was 141 days with a duration of 43 days the vast majority being low grade, uh, and the vast majority, 21 of 24 patients, received at least one dose of glucocorticoids. 54% uh, 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 had resolved at the time uh, of uh, the report. And again, there were two incidents of um, uh, grade five or fatal uh, interstitial lung disease uh, in this uh, analysis. Uh, so looking at a pooled analysis, a presentative AACR, uh, of um, uh, single-arm trastuzumab deruxtecan studies across the various tumor types. Uh, what you can see is uh, it's an important uh, identified risk factor uh, uh, in uh, patients treated with TDXD. Um, and uh, in this trial, um, uh, again, they looked at the timing 
Uh, they looked at you know the guidance uh, was um, the guidance uh, was initiated in the first quarter of 2018. There was a safe use campaign initiated, uh, and um, uh, you know they looked to see exactly what happened over time, uh, and they identified uh, several um, uh, factors that were potentially associated with interstitial lung disease based on a multivariate Cox regression model. Uh, and the, they were shown here, the patients were treated in Japan versus non-Japan, suggesting potentially there were some pharmacogenomic aspects to uh, ILD. Patients receiving a higher dose uh, versus a standard 5.4 milligrams per kilogram appeared to be uh, patients that had uh, were prone to ILD. Uh, patients who had a baseline uh, O2 saturation of less than 95%, uh, moderate or severe renal impairment at baseline versus no impairment, uh, the presence of lung comorbidities, including asthma, COPD, prior ILD, pulmonary fibrosis, emphysema, or radiation pneumonitis appear to be associated with ILD. Uh, and the time since initial diagnosis, patients who had a longer disease course before receiving uh, the TDXD appear to have a slightly higher incidence of ILD. Um, uh, when accounting for other factors, and this is important, Baseline lung cancer or lymphangitic carcinomatosis uh, and or prior chest therapy, radiotherapy, uh, was not associated with interstitial lung disease. Uh, and I think that uh, they felt at the end of the day, given that this is a fairly heterogeneous analysis, uh, the identified factors of interest remain to be confirmed. Uh, and I think future data in large or more homogeneous populations are necessary uh, to, to kind of confirm these factors that are associated with interstitial lung disease. Uh, the time to the first ILD event uh, in this analysis, the median time appeared to be 5.5 months, and most of the uh, ILD events occurred within the first 12 months of treatment. So this gives us a little bit of an idea of what to expect, that generally within the first five to six months, uh, and really within the first 12 months, most of the events should be seen. And if you make it through that 12-month period, uh, I think that uh, we can kind of not, it's not totally um, uh, possible. There probably are still a lot of censoring in the study, and there still could be some events that occur after 12 months, but it appears uh, that after about 12 months, uh, most of the interstitial lung disease is going to occur, will occur uh, in this. Um, again, looking at the uh, drug-related interstitial lung disease uh, by tumor type and, uh, and grade, uh, I think that, uh, again, the overall uh, uh, grade five ILD in all patients, about 2.4%. Uh, and again, the majority appeared to be, other than those uh, 21 fatal cases, out of 139, um, well, actually out of 879, uh, the vast majority appeared to be grade one and grade two, and there didn't seem to be any uh, really preferential difference depending on the tumor type, uh, at least initially. The other important uh, thing shown in this uh, table on the right is that once the guidelines were implemented, um, uh, the incidence, at least of grade five ILD, uh, appeared to go down. In 2020, there were only two cases uh, out of 160 patients analysis, analyzed. Uh, and uh, the vast majority of patients, uh, whether they had grade four, two to four or grade five, uh, received corticosteroids as part of the therapy uh, to try to ameliorate the interstitial lung disease. Thing. There's obviously, as I said before, significant anti-tumor activity. Uh, the majority of independently adjudicated ILD uh, grade, uh, the risk may decrease after about 12 months. 
uh, optimal steroid management uh, is was not really observed with the, the big problem was delay in detection of the interstitial lung disease and underdosing of steroids. Uh, and new toxicity guidelines have been implemented, uh, which suggests that uh, lower rate of high-grade ILD events after the implementation of the guidelines. Uh, and I think that potential risk factors include low O2 SAT, lung comorbidities, and renal insufficiency. Uh, and this really does, I think, support uh, a beneficial risk, a beneficial benefit risk profile of TDXD in advanced cancers. Uh, and that's really important because these drugs seem to work very well, uh, but with, um, uh, you know, really recognition, early institution of discontinuation of drug and institution of uh, relatively high doses of steroids early, uh, I think uh, really adjudicate some of the more severe um, uh, grades of interstitial lung disease. The uh, uh, ILD management program for TDXD, uh, if you suspect ILD, if you did, which is basically developing uh, radiographic changes uh, and or uh, an acute onset of pulmonary symptoms such as dyspnea, cough, or fever, and I tell this to all of my patients uh, who are on trastuzumab, uh, deruxtecan, uh, I tell them that uh, any new shortness of breath, any cough, any fever, they need to kind of contact us immediately. Uh, and if we're looking at uh, a CT scan, any kind of ground glass opacities, that sort of thing, uh, needs to be evaluated and not simply blown off as kind of like background noise uh, that we often, before uh, really recognition of ILD, uh, used to do. Uh, the evaluation should really be a high-resolution CT, uh, pulmonologist consultation where available, blood cultures and CBC. Uh, we would consider a bronchoscopy in some patients if, again, I think as Dr. Thomas said, to try to rule out uh, other causes. Um, I think, again, pulmonary function tests, pulse ox, and rarely arterial blood gases. Um, I think that uh, uh, generally that's kind of what we do. I think that uh, really we should follow this uh, regardless of severity uh, or um, seriously should be followed for resolution, um, uh, including after drug discontinuation. Uh, and then finally, um, uh, Grade one, you interrupt uh, the ILD, you interrupt the uh, dose, um, and if it resolves within 28 days or less, you can maintain the dose. If it takes greater than 21 days, you reduce one dose level. Um, uh, if it has not resolved within 49 days, uh, generally the drug should be discontinued. And if you have higher grades, grades two to four, uh, you should permanently discontinue uh, treatment. Guidelines uh, for uh, therapeutic management for grade one, uh, monitor closely and consider starting systemic steroids at 0.5 milligrams per kg per day uh, until improvement, followed by a taper over two weeks. Uh, for grade two, uh, really, you need to start steroids without following the patient uh, with at least a milligram per kg per day for at least 14 days with a gradual taper. Uh, and if there's no improvement, increase the dose of steroids to two milligrams per kg per day. And at that point, really, the pulmonologist will take over and try to uh, I think at that point, a lot of us would obtain a pulmonary consult uh, to try to determine if there are other etiologies. Finally, if it's grade three or four, uh, the hospitalization is required with uh, empiric high dose uh, methylprednisolone uh, at a fairly substantial dose for at least 14 days, followed by a gradual taper. Uh, and again, if there's no improvement with, uh, within three to five days, uh, generally we'll reconsider additional workup for alternative uh, etiologies. So that's generally trastuzumab deruxacan, uh, where we really recognized ILD up front uh, to try to uh, figure out the risk-benefit ratio. But what about other drugs? Well, there are mTOR inhibitors in interstitial lung disease. 
Um, this is the Bolero 2 trial, which is exemestane, an mTOR inhibitor uh, versus placebo, uh, avirolimus, I'm sorry, which is an mTOR inhibitor with exemestane, which is aromatase inhibitor. Uh, and I think we all tend to use this as second or third line therapy uh, for uh, hormone receptor positive anesthetic breast cancer because it uh, essentially more than doubles the progression-free survival as shown here, 4.1 months to 11 months. And so this is a successful therapy that's been used for a long time. However, uh, the incidence of pneumonitis uh, with either varolimus or temserolimus, which is used in renal cell carcinoma, uh, you can see here, and even in neuroendocrine tumors, uh, you can see the incidence is about 12 to about 17% averaging across all of these trials. So there is pneumonitis uh, with this therapy. Uh, and the proposed clinical management is a little bit different uh, than the ILD from uh, uh, ADCs. Uh, generally, um, uh, if there's airway disease or suspected ILD uh, with minimum symptoms, uh, I think people continue the mTOR. Uh, we consider inhaled steroids, but if someone deteriorates uh, fairly quickly, uh, the mTOR has to be uh, stopped until it resolves to uh, grade one or less. And a lot of people will start to reduce dose. Obviously, in the case of life-threatening ILD that is grade three or four, um, the mTOR inhibitor needs to be interrupted and uh, potentially permanently discontinued. Uh, and if um, uh, there is higher grade, uh, generally the, the therapy is prednisolone reduced on a slow taper. Uh, and um, again, if um, there's other suspected etiologies such as PCP uh, or um, other uh, uh, bacterial uh, potential uh, uh, etiologies in the differential uh, once you consider antimicrobial therapy while we're waiting the results of diagnostic procedures. Uh, so it's a little bit different. What's interesting actually uh, was published in The Oncologist uh, in 2021 that a virulimus-related pneumonitis in breast cancer actually was associated uh, with a response, the cumulative probability of this happening was about 80% uh, within, uh, if it's going to happen, uh, within the first 12 months. Uh, and um, the incidence um, of clinical patients developing clinical symptoms was about 16.3%. The interesting thing, though, is that if you had um, some uh, varolimus-related pneumonitis, your survival actually was better, uh, which is really kind of uh, interesting. The median over survival was 42 months if you had a varolimus-induced pneumonitis versus 23.1 months. And I think people are trying to figure out uh, how that relates, one relates to the other. I think it's an interesting observation. Uh, what about checkpoint inhibitors in interstitial lung disease? Uh, again, the instance of pulmonary toxicity uh, across all of the known uh, checkpoint inhibitors uh, in all tumor types appears to be somewhat lower uh, than that uh, from Averolimus, uh, as well as uh, that from uh, uh, Trastuzumab deruxacan. The incidence appears anywhere from 1.3% to about 5% across all of these uh, uh, agents. And I think most of the uh, uh, agents, uh, I think with the exception maybe of the combination of nivolumab and ibalumumab, um, appear to be uh, relatively the same regardless of the agent, regardless of the combination, whether chemotherapy or axitinib, uh, or dervelumab, avelumab, uh, tezolizumab, or pembrolizumab appear in nivolumab, uh, all appear to be about the same. Uh, here. I mean, there was one with Dervelumab, which had about 12.6%, but that seems to be an outlier uh, in these studies. Uh, again, this is another analysis, um, an older analysis, uh, showing uh, pneumonitis in patients treated with anti-PD-1 or anti-PD-L1 therapy. Um, uh, about uh, uh, 
80% of the patients were, were treated with monotherapy. Uh, the uh, vast majority of patients had P anti-PD-1 uh, inhibitor, and the, uh, most of the patients uh, um, uh, were non-small cell lung cancer and melanoma, the demographic we are typical for these cancers. Uh, and the interesting thing really is, is in the, uh, the all-grade pneumonitis um, uh, really appeared to be uh, more uh, located to grade one and two. The majority was grade one and two. There was grade three or higher in about 12 of the uh, 43 uh, cases, uh, at least of pneumonitis uh, in this analysis. Uh, when you look at all patient cases, uh, again, the vast majority uh, was grade one and grade two, uh, and it didn't really matter whether you had monotherapy or combination. I think some of the combination therapies, uh, such as with the combination of ipilimumab, uh, I think, or chemotherapy, if you're gonna have pneumonitis, the incidence of grade three uh, was a little bit higher. Uh, with the anti-PD-1 uh, or PD-L1 therapy. So what about tyrosine kinase inhibitors and interstitial lung disease? Again, another uh, uh, really, it really does not, um, I mean, standard and non-small cell lung cancer, hepatocellular cancer, renal cell carcinoma, melanoma, um, really the tyrosine kinase inhibitors across, I think with sunitinib and uh, pazopamib and uh, imatinib uh, is fairly rare. Uh, and the other ones, it also is fairly rare, about 1% averaging across all the trials. Uh, Brigonitinib uh, appeared to be about 4.5 to 7%. That seems to be the highest. But short of that, it really appears to be probably one, uh, you know, a little less than one to about uh, 1.5 to 2% uh, across all of uh, uh, the trials. Finally, CDK4-6 inhibitors in initial lung disease uh, have been now recently recognized as a side effect. Um, uh, the FDA and EMA uh, did a post-marketing analysis and analysis of all the trials of both abemocyclin, palbocyclin, and ribocyclin uh, in HER2 in receptor positive HER2 negative metastatic breast cancer. And very similar to the other tyrosine kinases, uh, uh, the CDK4-6 inhibitors had an incidence of about 1% to 3%. Uh, it averages about 1.5% when you look across the trials. And in fact, uh, this uh, is an analysis recently uh, published uh, showing about across all of the trials that have been done, uh, both in the, in the metastatic and in the uh, adjuvant setting, monarchy and palace or adjuvant uses uh, of um, um, uh, CDK4-6 inhibitors, uh, the incidence appears to be about 1.64% with the CDK4-6 versus about 0.68 with the control arms of the trial, which is roughly doubling, a little more than doubling of the rate by using the CDK4-6. The incidence of grade three or four uh, was gratifyingly fairly low, about 0.28%. Uh, with the CDK4-6 versus about 0.06% with the control uh, in uh, this uh, pooled meta-analysis. Um, and so uh, the FDA put out a warning about two years ago about severe lung inflammation with CDK4-6 inhibitors. And I think, again, like with uh, the ADCs and the other agents, if you, you know, really, we, if there's any worsening symptoms involving the lungs, uh, like a new cough, shortness of breath, this has to really be evaluated. Uh, fairly uh, quickly. Uh, and again, patients should really be monitored uh, for pulmonary symptoms indicative of interstitial lung disease and pneumonitis. And the symptoms are what we would expect, as Dr. Thomas talked about before. Uh, and CDK4-6 inhibitor treatment uh, should be interrupted. Uh, and if patients have severe, like say grade three or four ILD, uh, the treatment really needs to be discontinued at that point. So at this point, uh, we'll talk about best practice recommendations for monitoring, identifying, and managing cancer therapy-induced ILD pneumonitis. Uh, these are the grades or mild as asymptomatic with radiographic findings only, 
uh, grade two is symptomatic but not interfering uh, with the daily activities of daily living. Grade three is uh, uh, interfering with the activities and or oxygen uh, is indicated. Finally, grade four is life-threatening uh, with or without the need for ventilator support. And grade five is fatal. So close and early monitoring techniques for cough, dyspnea, fever, and new or worsening respiratory symptoms. Um, I think uh, the important thing here, uh, and Dr. Thomas uh, can weigh in if she'd like, I think the key is really to advise patients to contact their healthcare provider, provider immediately uh, and to inform the patients of risks of severe life-threatening or fatal interstitial lung disease. Dr. Thomas, do you have any uh, comment on this uh, particular topic? Yeah, I agree with you that it's you know very important to warn patients ahead of time to look for these symptoms because they're the ones that are going to notice it as well as their caregivers. Um, it can be it's you know an indication for workup and uh, can certainly be indications of other acute illnesses too that need to be further evaluated. Um, this can be a little bit more difficult for patients, for example, with lung cancer because they may have underlying cough, dyspnea, um, and even fever that may worsen. So being very careful with how subtle changes can actually be an indication for uh, pneumonitis. Good. How important is radiographic imaging? Um, so should we get a CT on everybody that comes in the door, Dr. Thomas? Um, you know, it sort of depends on the severity of illness and their baseline. I think one big clinical indicator is if they're suddenly newly hypoxic or have an increase in their oxygen requirements, that's probably a pretty good indication to get radiographic imaging and to go ahead and start with the CT. Um, a chest x-ray is going to be very limited in giving you any information. Um, and then, you know, it's sort of on follow-up when you evaluate these patients. If there's very close follow-up, you can see if, you know, it's just the sniffles one day and then it's progressed into cough and dyspnea, then you might take that more seriously and get a CT at that point. And so is when do we involve a pulmonologist? Do we involve a pulmonologist for all cases or just severe cases? I think it's it's tough because of the variability that these can present with and all the other things that are on the differential. Um, you know, if you have the benefit of a tumor board that's multidisciplinary, this can be very helpful. And you can often review cases with the radiologist and with the pulmonologist that is this just straightforward pneumonitis or if there's something else that we can worry about. And your radiologist and pulmonologist can give their feedback into, well, you know, this certain infection can have a similar pattern. Maybe we should do a bronchoscopy. Um, so I think the earlier that you get a pulmonologist and radiologist involved, the better. For severe or very severe disease or higher grade, you know, more likely than not, you'll already have a pulmonist, pulmonologist involved either as a consultant on the floor uh, if they're hospitalized or even in the ICU. So I think early detection and early involvement of your um, consultants is pretty important. Great. So the next question is really when to do corticosteroid treatment. When would you use steroids in somebody uh, with suspected ILD, Dr. Thomas? I think if they have grade three or four, it's pretty much a no-brainer to use steroids and stop the agent. Um, if they have grade one, you can sometimes get away with just stopping the agent. But if it, the disease is progressing, you might consider. Um, and then grade two can sometimes be a gray, uh, gray area, and depending on the agent or the um, you know, kind of pattern on the CT, you might consider steroids. And that's going to be, this is going to be different for each agent that we see. Um, sometimes the pattern can be helpful to decide whether or not it's going to be responsive to glucocorticoids. 
So for example, eosinophilic pneumonia or organizing pneumonia tends to be much more uh, steroid responsive. What's also going to be difficult is that, for example, organizing pneumonia tends to take a longer taper of steroids because there's a high rate of recurrence for organizing pneumonia if you taper off the steroids too quickly. And then finally, I think with, you know, if there's any sort of infectious symptoms, which if the, they have the regular symptoms of pulmonary toxicity, that's almost identical to infectious etiologies, you might consider bronchoscopy if it's safe, or sometimes, like you alluded to before, just empiric antibiotics to cover them while you're treating them with steroids. Great, and so that's great. And so what about if you're giving high-dose do you consider prophylaxis for pneumocystis? So yeah, definitely. Um, if you have high-dose steroids, and usually we prophylax for PJP if you're on prednisone greater than 20 milligrams for over a month, um, then you might consider PJP prophylaxis with either Bactrim or Dapsone or whatever agent that you might choose or is appropriate for the patient. Um, if it's just a pretty short course, for example, less than 14 days, and they're going to be on tapering doses that go under 20 milligrams, you may not necessarily need PJP prophylaxis. Great. And so, you know, now, um, you know, these are, we'll talk about an overview of recommended management protocols. And there's two, there's actually several, and I'll go through them and I'll ask uh, you, Dr. Thomas, what you think after I go through these. Uh, the first one is pneumonitis from a publication in 2021 in cancers, uh, grade one, uh, you continue the to treatment and monitor the patient. Um, grade two, you discontinue the treatment uh, and uh, possibly restart when the grade becomes zero to one. Uh, at this point, you would start oral, oral corticosteroids with possible empiric antibiotics. If there's no improvement after about uh, two to three days, then it would treat it as grade three. For grade three and four, you discontinue the treatment uh, and hospitalize the patient for high-dose corticosteroids, potentially consider other options with a bronchoscopy uh, or um, other uh, potential agents. Now, specifically, uh, an ILD management program for uh, TDXD, uh, generally, if you have grade one, uh, you would uh, interrupt the drug. Uh, grade two, uh, well, the step one is you interrupt the drug. Uh, and look at for radiographic change. Step two, you confirm that uh, with a high-resolution CT, a pulmonary consultation, and again, a potential bronchoscopy if other um, uh, uh, etiologies are suspected. Uh, and um, generally, uh, you have to follow to drug discontinuation and even beyond. Uh, and the drug needs to be interrupted. That's the management. And um, basically, grade one, you interrupt until fully resolved. Uh, and if it resolves within 28 days, you can redose one dose, uh, dose level. Uh, however, if the ILD has not resolved within 49 days, the drug should be discontinued. Uh, and grade two to four, you permanently discontinue treatment. And this is really interesting because we have a lot of people with minimal symptomatic disease and radiographic changes that rapidly uh, go back to zero or one. And I think this is a this is an area, kind of a gray area. You know, you're kind of grade 1.5. You're not quite severely symptomatic. Uh, and I think, you know, a lot of us are really trying to figure out whether we should retreat patients uh, with trastuzumab drugstikin uh, that have become minimally symptomatic. And I'll ask your comments on that in a minute. Uh, but uh, finally, um, these are the recommended guidelines for grade one. You closely follow and consider starting systemic steroids with a gradual taper over four weeks. Um, if you have grade two, you promptly start. You don't wait. You start the systemic steroids and give for at least 14 days with a taper over two weeks. And if there's no improvement in five days, you increase the steroids. And finally, grade three to four uh, requires hospitalization and empiric high-dose methylprednisolone 
uh, for at least 14 days with a gradual taper. So let me ask you a question about this. I mean, how, you know, if you have someone referred to you, Dr. Thomas, you know, say, I have a patient with breast cancer that's getting transthusional deruxacin, uh, comes in with a minimal cough. I mean, we're going to have a case, but I'm curious how you'd manage this now. Comes in with a minimal cough uh, and has a pattern on the CT that suggests um, interstitial pneumonitis. How would you recommend, if I sent her to you, uh, what would your management recommendations be at that point? I mean, obviously, you would definitely discontinue the drug and see if there is resolution of the symptoms, um, depending on the pattern on the CT and their clinical presentation. You may or may not consider if there's any other underlying diagnoses, for example, infection that you'd be worried about or metastatic disease, et cetera. So I might, you know, if they have significant enough symptoms, get a CT to evaluate that. Um, and then, you know, if they resolve with sort of my mild symptoms with just discontinuing the drug, I'd probably hold off on any steroid therapy. Um, but if they're progressing or their symptoms get worse, I might consider it. Um, sort of in that uh, arena. Um, but one thing is, you know, I definitely defer to my oncology colleagues of whether or not to retrial the drug, um, especially it's going to be more patient specific on what line of therapy that they're on and what options that they have. But for sort of mild disease, I would probably just recommend discontinuing the drug and following with serial CTs and visits to see if their symptoms resolve. Right. And in clinical practice, it's usually what happens. I think a lot of us, if someone is symptomatic, I think we really should stop uh, the drug and discontinue. But if someone's responding dramatically and it's much later lines of therapy uh, and is minimally symptomatic, maybe just a really mild cough, um, I think that some of us may actually uh, restart the drug. Uh, and I think that's really a matter of some debate amongst oncologists is with that kind of grade 1.5 plus uh, what do you do? It's not quite grade two. I mean, they're interstitial pattern on CT, uh, but the patient's responding. It's an interesting question. So again, I think um, uh, going now to finally, uh, what are the strategies and tools uh, that we can employ for patient and caregiver education? So next, I'd like to mention that a brief educational video for patients is available as an added resource. In the video, I review risk factors, common signs and symptoms, monitoring, and management of cancer therapy-induced interstitial lung disease pneumonitis, as well as what, as what patients should do when we're experiencing symptoms. This resource is provided as a tool to improve communication between patients and their healthcare team to detect cancer therapy-induced ILD and pneumonitis at early onset for more effective management. We encourage you to access and use this resource in your clinical practice with your patients. Access Medical Education is also implementing a study to assess whether utilizing the educational video can pr improve prompt recording of ILD signs and symptoms by patients to their healthcare team. If you're interested in using this video resource with your patients, please sign up to be a site champion for the study. Site champions will be required to view the video with patients who will or are currently receiving targeted anti-cancer agents with known risk factors for ILD pneumonitis so now uh, we'll uh, talk about one case here. Oh, this is a 56-year-old woman who presented with a right breast mass and right quadrant pain. She had a CT scan of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis that showed multiple liver lesions consistent with metastases of the largest three centimeters. And the biopsy of the breast mass showed an ERP or negative HER2-3 plus uh, infiltrating ductal carcinoma that was metastatic. Well, actually, that showed the, the infiltrating ductal carcinoma in the, in the right breast mass, and it was presumed that the liver, liver lesions were metastatic. So she was basically treated uh, with a typical therapy of paclitaxel, trastuzumab, pertuzumab, 
which resulted in uh, her liver lesions and breast lesions uh, reducing by about 80%. This lasted for about two years. Now she now had liver progression. Uh, she was then started on uh, TDM1, which was tuzumab-mentansine, with another 50% reduction in her liver lesions. However, 12 months later, she had progression. She was started on trastuzumab, uh, deruxtecan. Uh, her initial, she had diarrhea from this, which is a relatively common side effect, was controlled with loperamide. She did have a great response very quickly in her liver uh, after three or four weeks, uh, within nine weeks, I'm sorry, after the her first CT scan, uh, she had response, but she now presented with a dry cough, a minimal dry cough for two weeks, and had a chest X-ray CT, actually, that showed a ground glass infiltrate in the upper lobe of the left lung. So the question is really, what do we do? Um, and I'll bring that to Dr. Thomas. So, I, you know, immediately, you know, I refer to you uh, like a day later and I'm asking for what you would do. So how would you, uh, what would advice would you give me at this point? Um, you know, I would certainly evaluate the patient and see, you know, other than the dry cough, are there any other infections, signs or symptoms? Um, it sounds like pretty mild disease if it's just a dry cough for two weeks, but you know, on physical exam, are they having evidence of hypoxia, how severe their disease? You know, is it impairing their ADLs at home? Um, and then looking at the CT, what's interesting is that it's kind of localized uh, in just the upper lobe of the left lung. So you might consider if there's a certain pattern of consolidation at all, or if there's any concern for infectious etiology, but it sort of sounds like not if it's just ground glass. So at the very least, I would recommend at least discontinuing the drug to see if there's resolution of these symptoms and then close monitoring um, with evaluation from the clinic and maybe a follow-up CT in about four to six weeks to see if the ground glass infiltrates resolved. Um, if there's progression, we might start thinking about other etiologies of uh, the glass and the patient's symptoms. But that's probably where I would start. Would you treat the patient with steroids at that point? I think with mild disease, I would hold off unless there's any progression of the disease. Great. I think a lot of us would do that. I think, again, this is kind of the stage 1.5. It's not quite two. Her ADLs are completely fine. Um, and I think that it's reasonable to kind of redo her, her follow her symptoms very closely and redo her scans uh, in about uh, three to four weeks and see if things have improved. And if they have, I think a lot of us would potentially retreat her at that point, consider she's kind of a stage one not really a two, although she does have symptoms, but their ADLs are not being uh, compromised. And I think it's a really, it's kind of that soft debate whether you should stop it permanently. She's responding. She's like third or fourth line therapy already. And you're really trying to balance, uh, you know, the, the potential benefit of the drug versus toxicity. Obviously, if she progresses uh, either symptomatically or on CT, then we start steroids and kind of discontinue the drug permanently. That's kind of how I think we would manage this patient. So with that, I think, uh, you know, I want to, uh, uh, thank everybody for participating in this activity. I want to thank Dr. Thomas uh, for her uh, very uh, excellent um, uh, presentation uh, and uh, insightful comments that she's given about the management uh, of ILD. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Axis Medical Education and is supported by educational grants from AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals and Daiichi Sankyo. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.